Okay, so no, I'm not in the book of Revelation. Thank you, Joey, for that permission, because to be honest, if he would have told me he wanted to take me to take Revelation 18, I probably said, nah. I'll let someone else know. He's, I, it's like, let's go with his teachings on that for that continuity. And, uh, so I just simply uh, just went off of what I've been going through in my personal time in the mornings with the Lord. And I just so happened to be in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph at this time. And I just, it's hard for me to get out of Genesis because each morning is just like more good food, more good stuff just to kind of sit in and meditate and think about. And, you know, what I appreciate about coming here on a Sunday morning is, is I know I have opportunity with all of you just simply to take a time out from this world and all of its busyness and all of its responsibilities and all of its philosophies and all of its pressures and, and all of the things of life that go on that just kind of want to dirty us and kind of convolute our thoughts and our minds and our processes at times. And we have opportunity collectively each Sunday morning to gather here and say, time out. Let's just take a time out from all that stuff. Lay it aside and just let uh, the, the worship, the ministry, and the word wash over us. And so, Lord, wash over us this morning as we look at a familiar, familiar passage but may it illuminate our spirits in Jesus' name. The life of Joseph is unique in that he is maybe about one of two individuals in the Bible that there's not a pronouncement of rebuke laid up against him. Even when he shared his dream to his brothers, no, that it was never rebuked. He was never, uh, you may want to question the wisdom of that moment in his life, but he was never rebuked. And we know scripture is very candid, right, about individuals in scripture that serve the Lord that are the patriarchs and fathers of our faith. And they were rebuked different times, you know, whether it was Moses striking a rock when he shouldn't have or what have you. But with Joseph... We see no rebuke anywhere in Scripture. It's like, how did Joseph get there? How did he get to that point? And so to begin this morning for the first portion of this, I'm going to do a little bit of a flyby and just review again the things he went through that could have brought him down, that could have subjected him to a lot of rebuke. But because he was a man who had his principles and character in order, he did not. So situation that wasn't fair, number one, Joseph was a victim of favoritism. Genesis 37 starts out by saying, now Israel, and we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So Jacob was Joseph's dad. 
Israel was the name given to Jacob. Israel, which we now bring into, you know, the 21st century um, in terms of Israel, the nation. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. And he also made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably about him. Have you ever had someone in your life that just couldn't be peaceable with you? Maybe you even know of people who have hated you. Poor Joseph. He is coming down. He is reaping the benefits of a generational sin here in this situation. His great father, Abraham, the favoritism that Sarah had over uh, Hagar, Isaac over Ishmael, and the contention that it brought into the household simply because Abraham listened to his wife. No. Simply because Abraham attempted, see, I didn't, I, that's why I have that sign hanging in my room. I still get myself in trouble at times. Not because he, li- yes, because he listened to Sarah, but more importantly, simply because Abraham attempted to take matters into his own hand and the contention and favoritism that it brought into his immediate household that actually at a certain point, then they had to be separated from each other. And then the favoritism in Joseph's family lineage for his grandfather Isaac, for Esau, while grandma Rebecca favored Jacob. And how this resulted in trickery between grandma and grandpa so Jacob could steal the birthright. And as a result, Jacob had to flee, separate from the family, did not return for over 20 years, never saw his mother again, and was terrified that Esau was going to come out and get him and kill him. So this sin of favoritism going back is coming down the line, and now his daddy Jacob brings that very same sin into the home, choosing Joseph as a favorite Even at Joseph's peril, Jacob did this. Simply because Joseph was the firstborn of what? His favorite wife, right? Rachel was his favorite wife. And even though Jacob had 10 other sons and a daughter from three women before Joseph, Joseph was his favorite And to um, clarify this favoritism, we simply have to look at that coat of many colors, right? That infamous coat. The coat that symbolized prestige and honor. In other words, think about it of this man who has 12 sons, and at the 16th birthday of each son, the father gives him a pretty good used Toyota Corolla, right? Right? Oh, that's pretty good. Thank you, Dad. I mean, I could do with, I could have done, you know, well with a good used Toyota Corolla when I turned 16. But then one son gets a brand new cherry red Lamborghini. Yeah. That's kind of the distinction that was going on here because 
this cloak, well, James Boyce, theologian, reports that the term tunic of many colors conveys the idea of a tunic that extended all the way to the wrists and to the ankles, not a working man's tunic, but one of privilege and status that one wore while watching others as they did the hard work. So there's this disparity, this favoritism that played out in many ways in this family. So it's in this context that Joseph finds himself at the tender age of 17, hated by his brothers. And if you want a little bit to know a little bit more about these brothers and how crazy they can be when they're upset, go read Genesis 34 this afternoon. And you'll see how two of his brothers went and killed the men of Shechem because they had ticked them off. These were brothers that you didn't want hating you. But yet, he's exactly the brothers that hated Joseph. Now, not fair situation number two. Joseph had two prophetic dreams. These dreams, we know, are the, of the sheaves, right? The stalks of wheat bowing down to his sheaf, right? So the dreams even show favoritism, you might say. And the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to him. Now, at first glance, you might protest and say, you know, there's nothing unfair about Joseph receiving these dreams. After all, they were from God. And I'll concede that point. They're from God. And God was not doing anything malicious or evil or bad by giving Joseph these dreams. Indeed, I think if Joseph had written an autobiography that we could read, I'm sure that he would state that those dreams sustained him throughout the coming years. But my point is this. Listen to what Genesis 37 goes on to say about these dreams and the result of them being shared. So they, referring to the brothers, hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. From a fleshly perspective, right? The dreams only fueled the fire. It only created more tension. And so I just have often wondered, why didn't God, you know, kind of give the dreams to Joseph and then kind of warn him, like, hey, dude, you know, keep them on the down low. It's a better part of wisdom in this situation. We don't have any, anything of that written in Scripture. Number three, unfair, difficult tough. He's put in a pit with all but one brother intending to kill him. Oh, then they changed their mind instead of killing him or leaving him in that pit, to be honest, old, they sold him into slavery. So now we're getting the real to the bottom of this favoritism and the fruits of this. And we know the story, don't we? Dad sends Joseph Mr. Joseph out to the field to give a report on how it's going while they're doing all the hard work. He's going to just use Joseph as the messenger, right? 
And in their hatred, when he gets to them, they stripped him of his coat of many colors, threw him in the pit. And then in verse 25 of chapter 37, the Bible says, and then they sat down to eat. I mean, think about that. How ruthless is that? And what's fascinating about this situation where they threw Joseph into the pit, uh, later on in Genesis 42, when they're recounting that situation, it says, for we saw the anguish in his soul. They saw the anguish in Joseph's soul when they put him into the pit. And he pleaded with us, and we would not hear him. No, they sat down and ate and said, hey, pass the corn. Give me another shot of that mutton stew. I don't know, could they hear Joseph say, hey, you guys, what are you doing? Stop this. Guys, come on. I don't know. We don't know those details. But in his anguish, they had seen the anguish. I like, I like how that said. They saw the anguish in his soul. He was torn. He was ripped apart in his spirit. And they put him down. They sat down. And they ate as if nothing had been going wrong. Cold, callous situation. And then finally, the last terrible situation that Joseph runs into in his life is when, now in slavery, working for the chief security officer of Pharaoh, in other words, Potiphar, he's accused of raping Potiphar's wife, right? And this is after he'd been rebuffing her attempts to seduce him. And then, of course, she cries rape, and he gets sent to prison. And you want to talk about life not being fair. So we've just kind of set this up to say, who of us in here can measure up to the complications, the troubles, the unfairness, the trials that Joseph went through in his life? I don't think there's any of us here who maybe quite understand Maybe we do, I don't know, because we can't really compare each other's hardships, can we? Each of us are different, each of us are unique, each of us address and run into hardships in different ways. Some of us deal with hardships better than others, so on and so forth. Personality plays into it, and there's so many different things that can kind of complicate that. But the point is, is that in all of this that God allowed Joseph to go through, he is still, according to scripture, without fault. So despite the favoritism, being in a pit, being sold in slavery, falsely accused, put into prison for many years, Joseph was able, it says, in, verse, in chapter 39 of Genesis, to find success. It tells us in verse 23 of 39 that he gained so much trust and respect working for Potiphar that Potiphar just left him in charge of his entire estate. 
And then after the false accusation and imprisonment, he gained so much favor and trust. It says that he was put in charge of the other prisoners and was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Wow. And then after 13 years of being sold into slavery, being in, working for Potiphar, and then being for most of those years in prison, after 13 years, after interpreting a dream for Pharaoh, the ruler of the known world at that time, he's elevated to second in command of the known powerful nation of that time, the civilization as we knew it at that time, second in command. How did he become one of such spiritual nobility in the middle of all of these circumstances? And that's where we now start digging down just a little bit and I just want to, you know, there's not a, um, like I said, when you read these chapters in Genesis, and I think Joseph is one of the, uh, one of the men in Scripture that is written about the most. Um, so in all of that, you know, we have to glean. There's not any narrative by Joseph in these, in these verses. It's not, you know, his story, so to speak. It's about him. And so this is where we want to break down and look into some of, the, of what was going on inside of Joseph as he was going through everything he was going through. Clue number one, Genesis 41, 50 through 51. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenus, daughter of Pot. Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. Look, when people, individuals, families named their children back then, they named them. They didn't just name them after great grandma so and so. They didn't name him after some really cool name that someone else has that's like, oh, that's cool. No, they named him with a purpose. It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Joseph knew about Philippians 3, verse 13, where the apostle Paul says, but one thing that I do, it's like, Paul is saying, look, I found out something really important. Now, Paul done many things, but he, he qualifies this by saying, one thing that I've done is, what? Forgetting what is behind and pressing toward what is ahead. In this case, Joseph's nobility came from refusing to let the sins of others the rejection of others, the pain of others become a part of who he is or define him or become a part of his identity. He refused to let his circumstances cause him to become a perpetual wounded soul. He refused 
to be victimized by the pain and hurt of others. Now, we need to stop and think about this for a second. Did Joseph literally forget what his brothers had done to him? No. No. What had happened, what his brothers did to him wasn't erased from his memory. That's not what forget means in this situation, at least. No, he forgot in the sense that he held no illicit judgment over them. He forgot in that he forgave them. He forgot in that he did not get back at them. He forgot in that he continued to love them. He simply let it go. I don't know how else to say it. He just let it go. The Bible talks about casting all your cares upon him. Let it go when it doesn't fall into your domain of judgment, even though you are a victim. Let it go. Let God take over. Let go of all of the bad stuff. He let go of all of the bad stuff from the past. And he said, this generational sin is going to stop here. What's fascinating to me is that he used Hebrew names for his children, and that leads us right into clue number two, Genesis 41, 52. The second son, he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph never forgot who he was. He never forgot that he was not at home. Joseph undoubtedly recalled his youthful years when he would sit around with his brothers around in the tent with dad and listen to the stories about great-grandpa Abraham and how God called him out of the earth, the Chaldeans, to come down to the south where the Mediterranean Sea was to the west, the Euphrates was to the east, where you had Hamath to the north, and you had Kadesh to the south, as far as the, as the far as the eye could see, as many as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, that land would be populated with God's chosen people, the Israel nation. And I guarantee you, it's so clear here that Joseph never forgot those stories. He longed to go back and be a part of that vision that God gave to his great-grandpa great Abraham. He knew he was not home where we belong. And this is kind of astonishing. I mean, think about this. Think about what Joseph had to overcome mentally and emotionally to remain in that. When he was appointed second in charge, listen to all of the things that happened. He was given what? A new name. Uh, Zaphonath Paneah was his new name now. That's what people called him. He was dressed in robes of fine linen. 
Thirdly, he wore Pharaoh's signet ring. In other words, he carried Pharaoh's credit card. I mean, think about being in charge of the federal budget yourself. It's the power that he had. He had his own chariot, and he rode throughout the land, and as he did that, people shouted, make way, make way. He was the dude. He was the man. And he had a new wife, the daughter of a pagan priest, and now he had children. And he had all of this stuff going on, and the last memories he had of his chosen land was being rejected, was being hated, was being thrown into a pit, was being sold for 20 pieces of silver. That is, that's what his homeland, his home family did to him. And now he is the cat's meow, so to speak. Joseph could have so easily written off his family and his God and his people and put his nose up in the air and said, you know, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. In fact, give me a couple good Egyptian names for my boys. Let's just kind of keep this good ride going because phew, those people back there, they're for the birds. God doesn't want us to be comfortable with this world. He wants us to remember that we are strangers, we are aliens, we are pilgrims, and we should always have a longing in our heart for somewhere else. This world is not my home, okay? This world is not your home. And so those days, sometimes when the stuff is going on and the stressors are there and the challenge is there and the pressures are there and you're like, just, Calgon, take me away. Anybody remember that? How many remember that commercial? I'm sorry, younger generation. They're looking to worldly things to just take me away. It's God's way of reminding you. <laughs> You're just, you're just the dust in the wind. We're here for a short season. We're here for a short time. Better is one day. Better is one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand days elsewhere. I don't care how well life has it for you. In fact, Joseph, what I love about this, <laughs> Joseph felt so strong about Egypt wasn't his home in spite of all his success. That upon his deathbed, I don't know, go into Genesis, wherever, 40, the late 40s, somewhere, he makes his children on his deathbed promise him that after he dies, that they're going to carry him around and eventually take his bones back to the promised land because he didn't want to be buried anywhere else other than in the promised land. And so what? Some 300 plus years later, guess where Joseph was finally buried? In Shechem, in the promised land, 
Joseph finally got home about 300 after over 300 years after he died. So let's go ahead and be successful as God calls us to be successful in this world. I want Joey to thrive as a pastor. I want Bob to thrive as an electrician. I want Scott to thrive on the road. I, w- I want you to be blessed and go in Jesus' name. But man, this is not your home, and don't hang on to it too tightly because soon uh, we'll be done uh, with the troubles of the world. And finally, clue number three, Genesis 50, 18 through 20. His brothers then came and threw themselves down. Okay, so now this is the fulfillment of that dream that occurred probably about 21, 20, probably 22 years prior. So Joseph had this dream, and for 22 years it just it sat there. And they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I could preach a whole another sermon right there. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done. Again, I've referred to it before, but Joseph's autobiography, right? The things I'm going to sit down someday in glory land and say, hey, Joseph, I want to hear about it, right? I want to hear about it. I don't know if we will. I don't know how much of this world translates into that world, so on and so forth, if any of it does. But I'm not certain where it dawned upon Joseph that God was up to something in his providential care. Do you know right now, this morning, today, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what situation you're up against, no matter what pressures or stressors you've got going on, that God has a providential plan for it that's bigger than your current perspective on it. So God has that for us right now. And I don't know when that dawned upon Joseph. Was it when he was in the pit already? I don't know. Was it on the journey in the caravan to Egypt after being sold? I don't know. But it didn't take long because he became almost immediately successful in Potiphar's house. And he maintained his moral integrity and purity throughout all of that. Somewhere soon after all of this chaos started going crazy in in his life, he got a vision for God's providential care that God is up to something. Several times in chapter 39, when Joseph was working in Potiphar's house and in the prison, the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And as my last point this morning, I just want to park here for a second. And the Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph 
through all of those years. So it kind of begs the question, right, for us this morning. Can we be in financial insecurity? Politically correct way of saying, can we be poor and God be with us? Can we, can we be uncertain of where uh, financially it's going to be in a couple months as far as rent or something? And God be with us. Can we be experiencing physical pain and wear and tear for those of us, especially who are older, in our bodies that doctors can't seem to manage? And God be with us. Can we be in relationships with loved ones that are convoluted and sometimes very hurtful or painful? Or maybe rejection is involved or there's brokenness in relationship and loved ones and God be with us. Can we struggle with mental health issues? Can we be, have these ongoing issues with anxiety or depression or whatever it might be in terms of our moods and emotions and we can't seem to get a handle of it and God still be with us? Can we have sickness in our bodies and not be physically healed? And God be with us. Joseph was in a slavery. God was with him. Joseph was in the prison for what, 12, 11, 10, I don't know how many years. And he even told the butler interpreted his dream, said, hey, butler, when you go see the king, say something to me, and the butler never did, and that was an extra two years. And one could say Joseph might have even got off easy. Moses was in the backside of the wilderness for 40 years. But God was with Joseph. God always has a plan for goodness. You see, God understood this overarching plan the overarching plan was that God needed a place for Israel to take his family so that when the famine came, they would not die out and the lineage of the Messiah would continue on. God needed a place for the children of Israel while they were still, you might say, in their infantile years and they were maybe going to start being sucked in into some of those other tribes and the Jebusites and those folks. That was starting to occur. Well, with the Egyptians, that distinction was so clear that even though Joseph got all the honor that he did, guess what? You go read that story. Even though Joseph was second in command, he was still known as a Hebrew from the standpoint they didn't even eat with him. The Egyptians still, when he was second command, had all of that going for him. They didn't even eat with him to retain that distinction. And that distinction and that provision during all of that famine allowed for the children of Israel to become a strong nation that eventually went back into the promised land. And the seed, 
God used Joseph to provide the way, to make a way for the seed of the Messiah to not die out. God always has a plan. And so this morning, we just kind of want to close with that. Let's just close our eyes. And let's just open up our hearts. And let's just say, Lord, thank you that you have a goodness. You have a goodness. For the bad things that have happened to me or are going on in my life, Lord, I veil myself to your goodness and to your <coughs> providential plan. It's okay. That is what Joey was picking up on this morning. It's not okay in the sense of everything going on in this world is okay. It's okay because God is providentially in control. And God wants to use you now in the middle of the things you don't like to birth forth patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentle faith against which there is no law. So, Lord, take our circumstances, take our situation, and help us to know that in your providence it's all okay. You got this. You got us. You have bought us with a price. We are not our own. Use us how you see fit, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when we're chafing against it, even when we're hurt by it. Use, use us for your goodness. It's okay. It's okay. And Lord, I just pray even now that you would just give people in this room vision. Give them vision for how one day when we put this world behind us and we rise to our real selves in you, that you will look at us. And right then and there, when we see your face, we will know that everything that we have done in this life has been set forth to bring honor and glory to your name. And may we, as we are faithful, receive the vision of your look in our eyes as we enter to your presence. Because this life is about building for an eternity in you, in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen.